Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us today in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. You may recall, I said a week ago, that uh, the 10th chapter through verse 18 is the end of a very long section that began back in chapter 3. So there's an entire virtually the entire core of the book of Hebrews is one long argument related to the superiority of the priestly work of Christ. Christ is better than any other priest. And so we come to the concluding section or portion of that, and uh, he'll begin in verse 19, which we'll read next week, uh, to address the application of that. If Christ is this, then what about you? And how should we respond? And so that will all be next week. But today we come to chapter 10 and we'll read the first 18 verses. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you of what we have already seen just in the immediate chapter prior. What we learned in the ninth chapter a week ago is that the old covenant is inferior. Now, don't misunderstand the word inferior. The word inferior does not mean that the old covenant is bad. It does not mean that the old covenant is wrong. It doesn't mean that the old covenant is broken. There's nothing about the old covenant that's wrong, but it is inferior. I would uh, say to you, if, if you need transportation between here and Vicksburg, a bicycle will get you there but that is inferior transportation. Now, some of you would say, well, Brother Greg, you need to spend more time on the bike. That's another conversation for another day. But compared to an automobile of any kind, a bicycle is inferior. It's not wrong. It's not broken. It's not bad. But it's not a car. Praise God for cars. One day we'll all be Jetsons and We'll just go to Vicksburg in our spaceships or something. Who knows? So the old covenant is inferior, and it is therefore rendered obsolete by the new covenant. That's the point that he makes in the ninth chapter. It's obsolete. He uses that very word. And the reason that it is inferior is because it could not do some things. It could not do what the, old, the new covenant actually can do. The, it, the old covenant could not bring us into the presence of God. Christ alone can bring us into the holy place. We saw that last week. As long as the earthly holy place exists, it is a reminder that you can't go there because the holy place is for the priest and there to meet with God alone. So Jesus came to tear down to open up the holy place so that you could actually come in the presence of God. The old covenant calls for inferior priests sacrificing inferior animals, sprinkling inferior blood to purify only the flesh, not the conscience. So if you're going to clean my hands, that's one thing. But if you're going to clean the inside of me, that's really where the risk is, isn't it? That's really where the issue is. My personhood does not reside outside of me, nor does yours. 
Our personhood resides inside of us. So the old covenant could not remove the guilt or the shame that we feel as a result of our sin. The old covenant points forward and it serves as a shadow, but not the substance of the good things to come. I appreciate uh, every illustration offered. Perhaps you've heard the difference between a photograph and a real living person. I think of that often as one being the shadow, or if you will, the profile, and the other being the substance. I don't know about you, but I've seen many uh, video clips on the internet of servicemen and women who are returning after a long deployment. They come home and they surprise their children, perhaps at, at school. And all of a sudden, dad, mom walks in. And uh, what do those children do? They just jump up and they just lunge into their arms, nearly knock their mom and dad down, hugging them, so forth. Occasionally, you'll find a, a wife doing that. That, too, is sweet. Uh, but uh, wives are a little more reserved. They find different ways to do it. But nonetheless, uh, I'm always amazed and thankful for that, thankful A, that these men and women get to come home to their families, and secondly, that these children get to be reunited with the substance of their father, and they're not having to look at a video screen or a photo or to hear their voice. There is a difference between the shadow and the substance, and we all understand that. So that brings us to the 10th chapter where he's going to conclude a very, very long section and therefore bring us to conclusion as to regards to this argument. So we're going to read the first 18 verses of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Well, you might say, well, you know, we've heard that before, and you would be right. And you're going to get to hear it again today. I hope you'd rejoice in this truth and that perhaps today for the first time or maybe for the first time with real gravity, you can sense, if you, can, if you will, apply these great truths for your own heart and be free, free from the guilt and shame that sin possesses and to be released by the wonderful power of forgiveness. Thanks be to God for forgiveness. So I just want to show you three things. There's a lot to talk about here, but we'll uh, try to be brief. Number one, I want you to notice in verses one, two, three, four, that the good law, and I use that term intentionally, the good law, the law is good. The law is not bad. The law is good. The good law cannot, however, produce the good things to come. The good things to come. You'll, you'll note that the law is, as he says in verse 1, a shadow of the good things to come. It's not able. I want you to note in verse 1, he uses the word never. Never. It can never. Perhaps you're of the habit of never saying never. I think it's a good habit, by the way. You don't know what God might do and what God might lead you into or what circumstances might require you to do. So I'd caution against using the word never. I would never say never about most things. However, God has no compunction whatsoever using that word. Verse 1, the law can never produce the good things to come. There's a second word that stands out. Notice in verse 4, it is impossible. Impossible. We've addressed this word before. It is impossible. The, the writer of Hebrews uses this word again and again as regards the law, as regards the sacrifices of the old covenant. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take care of me. Again, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. You, you're a human being. You're created in the image of God. God never created another thing in his own image. There's not an animal. There's not a plant. There's not a mountain. There's not a river. There's not a valley. There's not a star. There's nothing that God has ever created except humankind that he created in his own image. You are the crown jewel of all that God has created, and he has given you a soul, a living soul, and you are bound for eternity because of the work, not of the blood of an inferior animal, 
but rather one who is superior to you, one who is like you, made like you, came to earth, took upon himself human flesh, took upon himself the limitations of human flesh. He was therefore tired and sleepy and hungry and all the other things associated with the limitations of human flesh, but he was also the son of God. And so because of that, he did not sin. So his blood is not simply equal to yours. His blood is superior to yours. That's why you can have confidence that it is the blood of the Savior, not the blood of some cow. It is never possible for the law which creates the sacrifice of cows to produce any hope of eternal life. There's a second word that stands out here. Notice in verse 2. Otherwise, meaning these sacrifices, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Consciousness of sins. We said much about this a week ago. I'd simply uh, remind you that in chapter 9, verse 9, the scripture says that the Old Testament law cannot perfect the conscience. The conscience. And then in chapter 9, verse 14, that Christ alone purifies the conscience. We distinguished a week ago from the fact that the Old Testament law has a ceremonial purifying power. It can make you outwardly clean. It can dress you up, look clean, put on. So all these vestments the priest would wear and the certain washings that the priest would do and so forth, even the sprinkling of blood and so forth, it can change your outside. It can make you ceremonially prepared, but it can't make you different on the inside. Think of a wedding. All right? Think of a wedding. Why do people get married? How do people get married? What's involved with getting married? Well, some would say getting married means, you know, a big white gown, costs your dad a lot of money. I did it three times. Still, still reeling from that, right? Or you can just put on blue jeans. Go to the beach barefooted, put on a white shirt like a million other people, right? You can go and get married. You can say, well, you know, one of those costs a lot more money. Now, one of those is a lot more ceremony. But the point is that it really doesn't matter about the ceremony because the ceremony is secondary to what's going on in here. The reality is you're about to, and I tell folks when I do premarital counseling, you're about to say yes for the rest of your life. Do you know how many other things we do like that? Zero zip nada. Listen, if you've still got 30-year-old blue jeans, you need an intervention. Get rid of those things. Nobody, nobody should be proud of keeping 30-year-old pants. Get rid of those things. Move on. We don't say yes to that for life. But in marriage, you do. And the reason you do is because there's something going on in here. There is a heart affection that transcends 
everything else in life. And you leave your parents, your siblings, your friends. You might even leave your neck of the woods and move across the country or around the world because of the affection that you have for this person. What else in life compares? Nothing. The point is, it's not the ceremony that drives you across the world. It's not the ceremony that drives you into somebody else's arms, away from your family of origin and so forth. It's not the ceremony. It's not the purification on the outside. It's not the dress. It's what's going on in here. The problem with man or the solution for man is inside. It has to be inside. <coughs> Excuse me. The good law, therefore, cannot produce the good things to come. And the reason is, is because the good law cannot change the conscience. You can put up a speed limit sign, but I don't have to like it. I have to obey it, but I don't have to like it. Because there's no law that changes the human heart. I've said it before, you cannot pass enough laws to eliminate gun violence. Not a referendum on guns here. But I assure you, friend, there is nothing outside of man that will change the heart of man. I'm reminded that God knows this better than us. Hear these words throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 51, verse 16, 17, David wrote these words. Some of the most famous words David ever wrote. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Samuel, confronting King Saul, Ask him in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 11 and following. Says the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my corpse? Stop bringing meaning, meaningless offerings. Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 21 and following. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Hosea said it similarly in verse 6. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus quoted Hosea 6.6 6 twice in the book of Matthew when confronted about his disciples and their disregard for the Sabbath because he harvested grain on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. When confronted with the fact that he was violating the Sabbath, he retorted with Hosea 6.6. 6. Go and understand what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
Amos famously said these words in chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. There's a favorite text, by the way, of Dr. Martin Luther King. And then lastly, Micah 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The blood of bulls and goats is not what God's after. He's after a conscience that drives a holy man to God. And the good law, good as it may be, is broken in that regard. Because the good law does not change the conscience. The law is good at accusing. It's good at identifying guilt. It's good at temporarily appeasing the conscience. But God has much better in store for his children. He has peace. He has joy. He has life. I want to urge you today to recognize that what God is looking for is for your affection for him, your devotion to him, your obedience to him, your sacrifice for him in the manner in which you live your life. That's got to come from within. God wants you to care for him, care for his people, care for those around you, care for those who are created in the image of God. God wants you to to act justly and to walk with mercy, to be kind, to be forgiving, to be long-suffering, to serve others. Why? Because that's the nature of God. That's who God is. And that is, therefore, the nature of his people. We're not to be proud and arrogant and boastful and cocky. The greatest sin of man is that man thinks that somehow he's the center of the universe. And you're not, friend. The needs of others, the circumstances of others, the concerns of others, the anxieties of others, the fears of others, the burdens of others. Aren't we glad that Jesus came and showed us what it is to do justly and to walk humbly? Aren't we glad that we have the perfect example of what that looks like? We would all do well to pay more attention to Jesus. There's a second thing we see in verse five, and that is that only the good son can make us perfect once and for all. The good law cannot, but the good son surely can. Consequently, when Christ came in the world, and now he quotes Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is another in a long list of psalms that the book of Hebrews quotes. The book of Psalms, if if you took the book of Psalms out of the Bible, the book of Hebrews would fall. The book of Hebrews quotes the psalms again and again and again and again. So when Christ came in the world, he is actually fulfilling the words of David in Psalm 40, 
verse 6, 7, and 8. Interesting here. You'll, you'll want to pay attention. This is what uh, Psalm 40, verse 6 and following says. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within uh, my heart. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. Think of that for a moment. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that the good son and only the good son can fulfill the prophecy of David in Psalm 40. What is Psalm 40 talking about? It is talking about the fact that God is not interested in burnt offerings, but he's rather interested in a body that will come and do his will. And that sounds a little bit sort of third person. Let's try to make it a little more personal, personable. He's, he's looking for a, a body, a person, one, one man to come and do his will. Now you look around this room. You look around any room. You look around your room, wherever that is. Is there anybody there who has done perfectly the will of God? The answer is no. We do not meet the will of God. So we are not the fulfillment of Psalm 40. We are not the one who's going to come and do the will of God. What God wants is not burnt offerings, people who have failed and have to come with sacrifices. That's not what he wants. He wants people who are righteous, who don't need sacrifice, who give mercy, who do justly, who obey God. What is better, a child who's obedient or a child who's disobedient? Well, what, is that a trick question? No. What's better? Obviously, an obedient child. What's better? A child who's obedient, a child who's disobedient, or a child who is disobedient but come and seeks forgiveness? Well, again, a person who comes and seeks forgiveness is closer than a child who's disobedient and does not seek forgiveness. Think of the parable of the prodigal here. Why does the father throw a party for the son who was disobedient but now has come seeking forgiveness? Because God loves mercy. God loves brokenness. God loves humility. God responds to humility. That parable is not so much about the prodigal son or the prodigal God, the prodigal. The word prodigal simply means hilariously liberal, generous, festive, just out of your mind happy prodigal, the prodigal son, the prodigal father. No, that parable is primarily about the older son who is stiff-necked and proud. And the, the father asked the older son incredulously, do you not know your brother who was lost is home? Does that not register on your heart? Does that not move the needle at all in your affections? Do you not understand what really matters to me? What really matters to me is that, that my sons come and they know me. They know my heart. They know my affections. It's incredible that you would see your brother as someone to judge, someone to look down upon, someone to criticize, rather than someone to say, thanks be to God, my brother who was lost is now home. The difference between a brother's love and perhaps a father's love. 
Only the good son can make us perfect because the only the good son has come to do his will. You'll notice how he phrases it. He quotes that phrase in verse 7, and then he refers to it again there in verse 9. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Gives new meaning, doesn't it, to Luke 22? In Luke 22, Jesus is praying And you'll remember these words there in the garden. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, let thy will be done. What will is Jesus talking about in Luke 22? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us exactly what will he's talking about. He's talking about the will of God to come and keep the law, be obedient, and to become a perfect sacrifice. It is the will of God that the good son do for you what the good law could never do. If you think for a moment that the sacrifice of an inferior animal is somehow going to put you in good standing with God, you are sadly mistaken. Because the blood of bulls and goats or any other animal or anything else not called the Son of God can make you right with God. No, sir. No, ma'am. There is only one will That is being referenced in Psalm 40. There is only one will referenced in Hebrews 10. And there is only one will referenced in Luke 22. And it is the exact same will. It is the will of God to bruise his only begotten son in your place. And that, friends, brings us to the last point. What we see is that the good son is the only one who can bring us to the status called forgiven. The good son. You'll note in verse 16, or rather 15, he says the Holy Spirit bears witness. And he quotes Jeremiah 31, one of the most famous passages of Scripture. If you don't have Jeremiah 31, 31 underlined in your Bible, uh, you really ought to rethink your use of an ink pen uh, It's one of the the great passages of Scripture, Jeremiah 31, 31. It's quoted here in in, uh, Hebrews 10, 31, 32, and 33. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will remember their sins no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. It is the good son who makes possible forgiveness. It is the good son who can take away the burden of the conscience. 
It is the good son who can make us right before God to sanctify us, to make us holy, to make us perfect. The Bible has a problem for me. And that problem is I'm not holy. I'm not perfect. That's the problem. God requires it, but I'm not. God expects it, but I'm not. God intends it, but I'm not. The law was given to show me that I am not so that I will cry out to God for mercy and therefore his spirit will come and forgive me. The only ground for forgiveness that I have is in the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God. The Old Testament sacrifice foreshadowed the perfect sacrifice. It announced the coming of the perfect sacrifice, but the blood of bulls and goats never were the the perfect sacrifice. But because of Christ, now his blood avails. His blood works. His blood comes to my aid. His blood provides the forgiveness of sins. And Jeremiah 31, 33, quoted here in verse 17, says, and I will remember their sins no more. Listen, friends, if your conscience convicts you, if your, if your conscience accuses you, then understand that maybe because you have recently sinned. If your conscience is accusing you, then run to God. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Absolutely. But if your conscience is processing appropriately, you will find that having done so, you can get up, hold your head up, and say, I know of that sin. Satan is accuser. Satan is a liar. Satan is one who maligns, criticizes, condemns. Satan is the one who's constantly telling us, you're not worthy, to which I always say, tell me something I don't know. I know I'm not worthy. No one ever said that a saved person is worthy. We're not worthy of the blood of the Son of God for crying out loud. If you had some extraordinary amount of money, millions and millions of dollars, and you gave that to me, my response would be incredible. Who is worthy of such a gift? And the answer is no one. No one. That's why we're not getting it, by the way. Right? We haven't done anything to merit that, so nobody's going to give us that. Now, I come to work, and if I work, I expect a paycheck, right? You go to work, you expect a paycheck. Why? Because you worked. But what about this gift thing? That's the difference between working and gifts. Gifts are undeserved. Unless, of course, you're eight, and they're required, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I never go see my grandchildren that we don't bring gifts. You say, Brother Greg, you shouldn't do that. Well, I only see them three times a year. So if you got a problem with that, talk to me later off, off, uh, off air. But I'm delighted to do that. But they didn't do that. I don't do that because they're worthy. I do that because I love them. I, I, want, to, I want to celebrate them. Why would God give me his son? I'm not giving you my child. And I would never ask you to give me yours. But God gave us his son. Because the only way that he could make you perfect 
the only way that he could ever reach the point where he could forgive you is if there were someone who could pay the price that you could never pay. Someone whose blood was not inferior, but superior. Someone who is the perfect son of God. It turns out that God had a plan or God had a will. And Jesus came to do the will. And because Jesus came, we can be forgiven. So today, I am proud, not of me and not of my sin, but I am proud of the one who gave himself for my sin and makes possible my opportunity to go to glory with my head held high, saying I deserve to be here, not on the basis of Greg, but on the basis of the Son of God. So it is in Jesus' name and in Jesus' name alone I have the hope and the promise and the assurance and the confidence of eternal life. And if you leave Jesus, if you miss Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, if you deny Jesus, if you think there's a better way than Jesus, friend, you have no hope of eternal life. But because you have Jesus, you can rest in the forgiveness and the promise of his eternal forgiveness. And you can hold your head up and say, thanks be to God. I don't have to be defined by my failures because they're forgiven. I don't have to be defined by my shortcomings because they're forgiven. I don't have to be defined by my rebellion or my inexperience or my lack of maturity or my outright denial of truth. I don't have to be defined by that. I don't have to be defined by yesterday in my life. Rather, I'm defined by the one who is the champion of my tomorrow. And I trust you today are looking to him. Praise be to God. Let's pray together now. Father, I thank you that you are full of grace and you're the God of gods. And we long to be assured of that, helped by that, reminded of that by your word. Thank you that your spirit has brought us to see this truth and to love this truth and has brought us to salvation. Help us, Father, to rejoice in the work of Christ for our forgiveness. And thank you, Father, that you are at work in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. It is Christ whom we love because it is Christ who loves us and loves you and has done your perfect will. Lord, let us look to no one else, to no other. There is but one Savior, and he is Christ the Lord. For it's in his name we pray and rejoice. Amen.